Hello again. Welcome to Knowing God with Heart and Mind. This podcast virtual classroom study presented each week by me, Pastor Dan, on behalf of the people of Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. Our virtual church classroom studying the doctrines of the church at this time in a course called Christian Believer, Knowing God with Heart and Mind. Today's lesson is number 27, A Time of Reckoning, The Judgment. It's originally presented to you on February the 9th, 2018. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Throw away thy rod, throw away thy wrath, O God. Take the gentle path, for my heart's desire unto thine is bent. I aspire to a full consent. Though I fail, I weep. Though I halt in pace, yet I creep to the throne of grace. Throw away thy rod, though man frailties hath. Thou art God, throw away thy wrath. Our key scripture for this lesson is Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Genesis 18, 25. And our key hymn is a Charles Wesley hymn. This uh, hymn written by him, a prolific writer of hymns, and one who wrote hymns loaded with doctrine. We hear verses 1 and 2, a charge to keep I have. Verse 1 says, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, an ever-dying soul to save, and fit it for the sky. Verse 2. To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Once again this week, we have Bethany, my beautiful daughter, here to help with our study. Hi, Bethany. Hi, Dad. It is a pleasure to talk with you about big things like this again, and today's topic is a time of reckoning. It's about judgment, and uh, we're not talking about Judgment Day, the Terminator movie. Uh, we are talking about the judgment that the Bible talks about, so this should be very interesting subject matter. And uh, the first thing I want to ask you is... Uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the creed. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the Nicene Creed. That's been a part of our topic from the beginning because this whole study has been built around the, the Nicene Creed. So here's the Nicene Creed. I believe in God, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and is, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sin, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So there's the Nicene Creed. What does that creed say to us about the judgment? Well, it says that Jesus is coming back. 
Yep. And he's going to judge everyone, whether they're alive or not. Yep. He's going to come in glory. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's not just going to, like, roll in in a beater. He's going <laughs> to... Which is, gonna, which is what he did the first time, right? Well, well basically, that's what I was thinking. Like he's, he's not coming as a little squirmy baby all covered in goo and squalling. He's yeah. going to be, like, glowing and stuff, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the difference. At least according to the creed, that's what we hear, isn't it? So, yes. so what, uh, what are the, the most familiar beliefs you have about judgment? What do you think of when someone talks about the Christian doctrine of judgment? Um, I think it's two-sided because I think there are people who talk about Christian judgment and it's really like scary it's it's fire and brimstone and and man if you're not right with God you're gonna burn in hell and it's very dark and morbid and unpleasant and I don't think we're winning anybody over with that but then I think there's another side of it that it's that isn't dark and scary and morbid and it's still judgment like there's still a belief that what we do and what we say and how we act those things are going to be taken like they're going to be taken stock of but but it's not the same idea that like if you're not doing these things, that's it. You're done. So what I hear you saying is, is that the the judgment that is associated with what Christians preach is, uh, generally speaking, is either a fire and brimstone. God's wrath is coming, and if you don't turn, you're going to burn. And then. The other version is is that there's sort of this moral way of living that Christians preach and that God's going to judge you on how successfully you did that. Yeah, yeah. And that's the most popular interpretation. I think, I think so. Okay. So here's a question that's kind of interesting, though. Uh, what, what do Christians... What are Christians willing to admit they don't know about the judgment? Uh, now, it's, again, we're speaking in general terms because obviously we can't speak for every Christian. But, but what's your understanding of the things that Christians don't know about the judgment? I feel like there's a lot we don't know. Because Revelation is, is kind of where we get our information about judgment. And, I mean, it's got plenty of information in it but I think that it's also kept kind of general for a reason mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if that makes sense or not but so I, I, I feel like there's a lot we don't know because like we know the gist of it we know that that Jesus is going to come back in glory like we said and he's going to judge the living and the dead and we know that he's going to like do battle with the the dragon right. devil stuff um, but I think I think there's a lot we don't know about how the judgment's actually going to go down so what I hear is is that you're focusing and I believe like most people on the events at the end of time when Christ returns and judgment is more uh, like that Jerry Clower story I like to use at least twice a year in some <laughs> sermon, you know, the, the one about the fellow who saw this, the, the airplane riding words in the sky and thought it was the judgment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it was just Pepsi Cola. Well, yeah. the, the truth is, uh, this topic, as we're going to approach it tonight, 
is more a topic of just what is the nature of God's judgment and what probably turns a lot of non-Christians or marginal Christians off when we talk about judgment is this idea that God's going to come with fire and wrath and and fry everybody who isn't in the program. And this is not necessarily untrue, but this is not the thing to focus on, at least until we have a clear understanding of what judgment really is. So let's use scripture as our guide and let's focus on what judgment is and why God is justified in executing judgment. So that, that's kind of where we're headed with this. And uh, I want to read Psalm 96 to you. And then after I read it, I'd like you to reflect on it a little bit by answering some questions. So Psalm 96 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are his sanctuary, are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in his splendor, uh, in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So that's Psalm 96. And... Who is this Lord, then, that is coming to judge, according to Psalm 96? Is that a trick question? <laughs> no. It's right out of the Christian Believer book. It, in Psalm 96, <laughs> who's the Lord that's coming to judge? I'm just going to take a stab and say Jesus, okay. God, the Trinity. Yeah. But think about what Psalm 96 is saying. Um, like one of the things that really jumped out now, now folks that know us know that you can't be at church every Sunday with me, but I know you listen to the sermon podcast. So in last week's sermon, I went to great pains to explain to people that God is wholly other, that the people who died in the wilderness wanderings of Israel died out there because they had us. They had placed the God of all creation, the one who made everything, on equal terms with the idle false gods of Egypt. And they just never could shake that. They, they never could see God for who God really is. Instead, they were stuck in this sort of Egyptian mode of understanding God and gods in general with a small g. So in Psalm 96... The one of uh, the verse says that uh, 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 worship his holiness and tremble before him. It says, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. So who's coming to judge? The big boss. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, the God. Not any of the other little gods. The big one, the one who did the things. So in our... <laughs> yeah, in our fundamental theology of good and evil that we've already talked about in previous lessons, 
the one thing that we understand is is that Satan might be powerful, but Satan is a created being. Yeah. That that God, in order to be the God of all time, ever, the only God, the unique quality is that otherness, that the fact that God existed before anything God created. Therefore, God's got the upper hand over every created thing. And so the one who's coming to judge is the one who is the, the creator, the numero uno. Alpha and omega. Okay. So by what standards then will that God, that, that one and only God judge? That's the next question. What what standards does Psalm 96 tell us that God will use to judge the nations? You look at verse 13 again. And verse 13 says, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Yes, so... I would say, like, if you're thinking Old Covenant-wise, it's going to have to do with the commandments. And, you know, like, like all of those things that we've talked about before, like faithful worship and doing all the different sacraments and things like that. And I think if you're looking at New Covenant, New Testament, it's still those things, but then there's the Jesus factor. Mm-hmm. So we're being judged based on our faithfulness in terms of are we doing it Jesus style? Well, and I'm thinking again about what Psalm, uh, what Psalm uh, 96 says that the that that the judge is going to judge in righteousness and faithfulness. So. Righteousness. Let's just talk about that for a minute. Uh, what What is the righteousness of God's standard? I mean, it's sort of a self-stating answer to the question, isn't it? Yes. The, the previous answer about who's coming to judge was the creator. You know, uh, how... how That's a trick question. <laughs> well, yeah, but... So, so like, let's, let's look at it this way. Uh, uh, let's say that you're the engineer and you have designed and built a bridge over the Ohio River. And every year you come back to inspect it. That would be good. I, I personally would really like the engineer who designed the bridge to come back and inspect it. Because, like you know, the creator knows whether it's right or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, the creator is the one who knows at least how it was designed to work and whether it's functioning according to the design. So this is what I think it means when it says that he would judge with righteousness. He, he would judge with the eye of the creator. And then it says yeah. he'd judge with faithfulness. So, so who's he faithful to? Us. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I do know engineers, but, you know, I don't know the guy who designed the last bridge that I traveled over uh, high above a river. But I would say that to some extent that engineer loves the creation, you know, that, that the engineer has a certain passion for what was created and would probably be deeply offended if some other person came along and said, oh, you can do it better this way. You can change it this way. We're going to use your design, but we're going to monkey with it a little bit. And my guess is, is that that original designer would be deeply offended by that and would want to expect uh, to have, you know, his or her original plan observed. So so anyway, it, it, so the, the faithfulness, I think, is that, that God has a vision of who we are excuse me, who we are and who we're supposed to be. And so, I don't know, we're probably killing that question to death. Or killing it to death. Uh, so, 
way to do it. Yeah. So let's go on. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 to 38. Now, that's a little bit of reading, but here's, here's what it says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse, as they are today. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his attendants, his officials, and all his people, and all the foreign people there, all the kings of Uz, all the kings of the Philistines, those of Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the people left at Ashdod, Edom, Moab, Ammon, all the kings of Tyre and Sidon, the kings of the coastlands across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buzz, and all who are in distant places, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of foreign people who live in the wilderness, all the kings of Zimri, Alam, and Medea, and all the kings of the north, near the far, near and far, one after the other, all the kingdoms of the face of the earth, and after all of them the king of Shishak will drink it too. Then tell them, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Drink, get drunk, and vomit, and fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them, This is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. See, I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name. And will you indeed go unpunished? You will not go unpunished, for I am calling down a sword on all who live on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. Now prophesy all these words against them and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread the grapes, shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth. For the Lord will bring charges against all the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Look, disaster is spreading from nation to nation. A mighty storm is rising from the ends of the earth. At that time, those slain by the Lord will be everywhere from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be mourned or gathered up or buried but will be left like dung on the ground. Weep and wail, you shepherds. Roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock, for your time to be slaughtered has come. You will fall like the beast or the best of the rams. The shepherds will have nowhere to flee. The leaders of the flock, no place to escape. Hear the cry of the shepherds, the wailing of the leaders of the flock, for the Lord is destroying their pasture, the peaceful meadows, will be laid waste because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he will leave this, his lair and their land will become desolate because of the sword of the oppressor and because of the Lord's fierce anger. There's some fire and wrath. Yeah, this is <laughs> one of those that might make people a little nervous. Yeah, so... In what sense is this uh, judgment always built into our own actions? So what, what is included in this idea uh, that God is just? In other words, now that you've heard that much, what makes you think God is just? I'm hearing silence. I'm thinking. I mean, does God sound very nice? Well, that's that's what I was trying to figure out how to say. If you go just based on that one, he sounds really angry and not super just if you think about the definition of the word. Yeah. 
Let's go back to Psalm 96, which says the creator knows how it was supposed to be. Right. And the creator is going to be faithful to the original design. Yes. And I, like Jeremiah, that Jeremiah passage, like, ain't nobody getting out of that one. And, and, and like, if you've read the rest of the Bible, you know that all those people he named brought it on themselves. Now, maybe this will help. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 25 of Jeremiah. And let's listen here at verse 8. And this is the part, these are the verses that lead up to what I just read. So I, I think it's kind of clever that we have to hear and think about just how really horrible God's wrath is. But now we're going to read the why. Verse 8 says, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all the surrounding nations I will completely destroy, and then make them an object of, of scorn. And... Then he says in verse 12, but after 70 years, I will punish the king of Babylon and I will bring, in verse 13, he says, I will bring on that land all the things that I had spoken against Israel and they will become the slaves. So, so God is saying two things here about the nations. He's saying that the one that he had a relationship with betrayed the relationship. They broke the covenant and they stopped listening to God. So that's why this terror is coming upon them, this wrath. But he also says, but I don't mean to have any favoritism towards the people I'm going to let destroy you. I, they're just an instrument. Right. So what does this say about God? Look for a simple answer. Go for the easy answer. What is it? That he's about justice. Right. And he is, God is all powerful. Yeah. That that it's not, it isn't about one nation being more just than another. I, I think the times we're living in are worth applying to this particular value. For example, uh, there's a sense that I well you know you've heard me talk about this is one of those topics you and I have uh, have gone through before where I've said that I have this general thesis that the worst and the best thing that ever happened to America in the last 100 years is that we came out victorious after World War II it yes. was it was the best thing because well it was the only answer I, you know that it it's not like the world uh could have tolerated what was happening on the part of the Axis powers, you know, there, there, it, it, you know, and I'll grant you that things are never as black and white as, as we would like for them to be. But, but basically you had some nations that were really bent on the destruction of their enemies and sort of a supreme power uh, and supreme dominance. And then you had nations that were really kind of wanting to, to live, in a way that was not about dominating others, but about, you know, everyone prospering for the most part. Now, it's not as clean as that, but I I think that's what was happening in World War II. So basically, we had to win. Uh, on the other hand, because we won, America came out thinking that somehow we were favored by God and that somehow... Uh, our Christian Christianity was was superior. I think as a pastor that one of the things that has really disastrously affected the church in the last 50 years or so has been uh, the realization that we were self-righteous in the church, not really righteous in God's sight. So what does that mean in context of judgment? It means that God may let bad things happen to the so-called Christian nation that we live in, and it may not have anything to do with us. 
it may just be God doing what is best in God's eyes for all of creation. Mm-hmm. So that's how I interpret the the Jeremiah passage in a way. That makes sense. You know, uh, I want to look at another one here. I want to look at Amos. Amos is not a guy that we uh, hear very much from. He's a fascinating character, though. Uh, Amos, Amos was, uh, uh, he's been thought of as everything from an apple grower to a farmer to, to a broker or merchant. He's been described a lot of different ways. But the most important thing to know about Amos was is that he was called out of the southern kingdom to prophesy against the northern kingdom. So basically that would be like in the civil war of the United States, uh, some southern gentleman coming up to the Congress in uh, the Republic uh, and standing in front of Congress and saying, now y'all need to listen to me because the Lord has given me a message for y'all. They just wouldn't have taken him very seriously. I was imagining Belichick trying to coach the Steelers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with you. That's where my brain was, you know. Um, listen to this uh, from Amos and uh, see, what, see what we get out of that. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark, without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will not regard for, have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your god, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calneh and look at it. Go from there to the great Hamath, and then go down to Gath in Philistia. And they better are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away at your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Well, I no, I'm going to go on just a little further. So verse 8 to 14 says, The sovereign Lord has been sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I detest his fortress. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If 10 people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says, no, then he will go on and say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. The Lord God has given the command and I will, he will smash the great house into pieces. So anyway, what, given what I was just talking about, about this sort of delusional Christian America that we have received over the last 50 years, how's that Amos passage ringing with you now? I don't know. I was, 
it was making me laugh. Really? Yeah. Talk about that. Well, I, uh, it was just really sassy. Like the whole thing about running from a lion and finding a bear and. Well, put that in modern terms. What does that remind you of? Uh, have you known any self-righteous Christians? No. Sorry, sorry. I forget that I'm on audio. And That's right. Sarcasm doesn't Your work. Your thoughts are going to be broadcast to the masses. You might want to speak carefully. Does, oh, this, no. <laughs> does this remind you of certain kinds of Christians? Yes. You know, they're they're holding religious festivals, they're strumming their harps, they're eating high on the hog, they're living in nice homes and and they have all kinds of you know what God's fundamental gripe with the northern kingdom at the time that Amos was speaking to them was that they were prosperous. They were comfortable. And they worshipped regularly with elaborate worship services. Man, they could put on some real performances in their churches. And they gave lots of money to organizations like the Red Cross and, and uh, you know, Habitat for Humanity and stuff like that. And they felt really good about themselves. But then, you know, uh, they might walk right past someone in their own streets who is begging for just enough money to feed their baby, uh, some widow or orphan who was helpless. They would kick them out of the way like a dog, uh, you know, and say, peace be with you, and then never do a thing about it. This was God's gripe against the people of the northern kingdom that he was so expressing through Amos. In America. Say again? I said, that sounds a lot like modern America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, this is why I was trying to see if you were hearing that. Uh, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I just, I, I was stuck on the words because I like words. And Yeah, and, and sure. And, but what do those Christians that we're talking about like to say? They like to say, oh, the day of God's judgment is coming. You know, you need to, they might turn and look at that poor devil that's in the, uh, in the intersection there where the, where the traffic light is holding a cardboard sign, and they might say, you need to repent of your sinful behavior. Go get a job. And, and, and they, they might lecture this person about how when Jesus comes, he doesn't want to find them like that, you know. Well, and, and they're assuming that they don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, yeah. They're excited, uh, excited for judgment because they're like, ah. There's a lot of holier-than-thou-ism out there. And that's what this passage from Amos is really about. He's saying that, so, so here's, here's where I think that the author of the study has tried to take us so far. Let me summarize. Um, I really wanted you to do more talking, you know, but um, this up to this point, you have a series of passages that tell us, first of all, God is the God of all creation, that God is righteous, God understands how the creation is supposed to be, and God intends to hold it against the standard that he created it by. The next thing God, or next thing we hear in the passage is that God has the power to utterly destroy anything that displeases him. And even if he uses one nation to bring down another, that doesn't mean that he won't ultimately bring down nation number two as readily and completely as he did with nation number one. And then he jumps up to Amos and he says, look, in Amos, I want you to hear that people who think they've got it all together, who are waiting and looking for the coming of the Lord, they're waiting for God's judgment, that they better stop and think about what they're asking for. Uh, it's kind of like when people get irritated with each other and they go, there's just no justice in the world. And they see other people not getting what they deserve. And it doesn't ever occur to them that if they got what they wanted, they might be really sorry. Mm -hmm. You know, if I want God to judge the one who has sinned against me, I better be careful because someone else is probably asking God to judge me for my sin against them. And on and on it goes. A snake, a bear, 
a lion. That's what we've heard up to this point. Yeah. Now let's go to the New Testament. Okay. All right. Maybe this will positivity in here. This this let's get some positivity in here. Okay. You know me. I'm not I like the positivity. <laughs> All right. Matthew chapter eleven, verse twenty to twenty-four. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, and you've been to one of them at least. <laughs> Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, if it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had performed in Sodom, had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Aren't you glad it's getting positive now? <laughs> I know there's good coming. <laughs> well, you said you wanted positivity, and now I gave you that. You've been you've been to Capernaum. Yes, I have. Nothing going on there these days, is there? No, not really. I mean, unless you count the tourists. Yeah, looking at all their ruins. All, all of the, uh, yeah, the, the ancient ruins. So how is repentance an issue in judgment? In what sense is Jesus himself a judgment in this passage that we just read? And what's he basing that judgment on? Say it again. Okay, so what's he holding Capernaum responsible for? That was his home away from home. That's where he did most of his miracles. What's he judging them for? Well, it sounds like they're being self-righteous again. Yeah, I mean, Jesus was right there. He's saying all these, like, I did all these miracles here. And now you guys are fool, like, kind of fool yourselves. And then he compares them to Sodom. And he's like, man, if I had done this in Sodom, it wouldn't have been blown off of the map. Yeah. You know. Which would, is pretty damning. Yeah. And, and yeah, it is. But, but what's the difference in this case is that this is a place where he was physically in their midst demonstrating his righteousness, his role and his place as the son of God. And it made no difference. It didn't leave them changed. It left them, you know, they, they say, oh yeah, I remember those uh, couple of years when old Jesus was around and he, that was, those are exciting times. And then they go right back to where they were. Would you say that that describes a lot of the established churches of this day, that there's been revival from time to time over the years, but Mostly they're just museums. Yeah. Well, okay, here's the example that came to mind, and it's not a church thing, and maybe it's not a good example, but I was thinking, like, you know, Jesus is, like, the favorite son in Capernaum because it was kind of like his second home. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking of an Indiana example, like, French Lick and Paoli, they love Larry Bird. Yeah. But, and, and you know, they like everybody's got stuff about him up everywhere. He's their favorite son. But, as, you know, they're, they're still sleepy little Midwestern towns that don't have a whole, whole lot going on. So it doesn't, like, it change much. I don't know if that, like. Well, I, I think I understand your analogy, but I, I mean, you know, I wouldn't compare Jesus and Larry Bird, but well, that's not what I'm saying. I, I, but, but the fact is, is that they had a little bit of notoriety for a while because of Larry Bird or because well, of so, whoever came from their town, um, but it didn't change anything. Yes. So what I'm saying is like. Capernaum probably was enjoying having Jesus, but that didn't stop them from 
that was it. They didn't, it was just enjoyment. It wasn't anything else. It wasn't repentant. They weren't, there was no depth. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I think it does. Um, all right, let's look at uh, uh, Romans here. I, I'm, I'm going to have to keep us moving. Romans chapter uh, 2 says in verse 1, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do not, and then do the same things. Do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? What's the standard of God's judgment beginning to look like? What What's the critical thing that sets you apart in God's eyes from the other sinners. Repentance. Amen. Amen. Jesus said about those cities that he declared dead, if you just repented, yeah. if you just heard the word and repented, said, oh my gosh, I am not worthy. You know, see, that's his problem with those you know, I, I don't know how many times I've heard self-righteous, judgmental Christians quote uh, Revelation and say, you're just like Laodicea, you're just lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I've heard that so many times, it drives me crazy. Because they're the same ones Amos is talking about who are saying, bring it on, bring the judgment, I'm ready. You know, um, what what we hear from Jesus and then from Paul is is. Don't sit around judging everybody else. It's like preachers who spend more time in their pulpits talking about what's wrong with other religions and other people <laughs> than they do reading the scriptures to their people and inviting their people to have their hearts convicted and repent. What God Amen. what God demands is repentance. Yep. Engage God's mind, which is expressed through scripture. That's what we mean by logos. And repent when the conviction comes. That's, you know, I'm preaching, but that's what I think this is about. Uh, I agree. So, 2 Corinthians 5. Um, I'm just going to graze this one really quick. Uh, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have buildings, a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So now in 2 Corinthians, Paul says the repentance part is taken care of. What do you have to look forward to? Not only escape from God's wrath, but a life that is more than the substance of what we see and experience now. So he shifted in these two passages from these two different readings from saying, stop judging other people, just repent of your own sin. And then he's saying in 2 Corinthians, because when you do, there are great rewards. Positivity. There's that positivity. We finally found it. I was starting to worry. <laughs> Uh, well, let's see now. Don't get your hopes up too high because I'm going to read from Second Peter and he can be a tough character sometimes. Let's see what he says here in Second uh, Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless for the righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in the righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw in their hearts. So what's Peter saying? 
God's going to judge the unrighteous and the righteous. Yes. And he's going to spare the righteous. And what do we know righteousness comes from? What's the source of righteousness? It's that one word you already said. Repentance. Yeah. I would just like to point out, though, and I know this is Second Peter and stuff, but none of those peeps that you just named off, none of them knew Jesus. True. They didn't have Jesus. They found righteousness in God's eyes. Yes. Well, we've been reading from Jeremiah at church, and, you know, there was this lady named Rahab. Yep. Who was... Listed in Hebrews among the heroes of the faith. Right? You said Jeremiah, but you meant Joshua. Oh, what did I say? Jeremiah. Oh. It's okay. I know what you're talking about. Well, you know, you and everyone else, I hope. Well, all right. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying all of those people he named off, whether they were righteous or unrighteous, that was all... Old Testament, Old Covenant. It was before Jesus. So I like he's not wrong. It's yeah. gonna be. It's gonna come down to righteous versus not. But we also have this really awesome guy who intercedes for us. There you go. And the not. the this is so. This is where this this is kind of how we round this thing out. Okay. So so God will judge us all. And he'll find us righteous if we had the courage to repent. And he will find us righteous if we repent and accept a alternative plan. Yes. And this is the last part of the whole sequence that that God's judgment, which we're going to talk about. See, this is, this is sort of this week's lesson up against next week's lesson. It's like, first thing we have to recognize is is that there will be judgment and that we have to be found righteous in order to escape God's wrath. And the key to our righteousness is repentance. And then the acceptance of God's uh, his uh, plan of action that re- results in us being righteous in his sight, and that plan is Jesus. So I'm just getting ahead of myself. No, but okay. but that's so. But but the topic today is judgment, and so what we want to do to kind of round this out is talk for a minute about the nature of judgment, just given what we've learned so far. Now, instead of talking about judgment in terms of this great day of the Lord and this Armageddon stuff and everything, what we really know about God's judgment is that it's just, that it comes from the one and only being who can judge from a position of righteousness, the creator, the one who's above and separate from everything that was created. And we know that God is entirely, perfectly just. So the key to judgment that a lot of people, especially non-Christians, miss is that God would not be God if God were not just. And would it be right to tell whole cities that they're doomed to destruction because nobody in those cities repented and then change your mind at the last minute. No. So let's just say there's billions of people out there who have accepted that they repent of their sins and accept Christ as the Savior who takes upon himself the wrath of God for our sake so that we can be right with God. God has made this plan, authorized and executed this plan, witnessed Jesus' completion and fulfillment of the plan, and now accepts regular apologies and renewed relationships with God unconditionally, from now till Judgment Day, does God owe justice 
to anyone. I give you a hint. There's one. Yes. If God pours out his wrath on the one who never deserved it in order to compensate for the sin of all the rest who do deserve it, then is it fair and just not to execute wrath upon those who did not accept Jesus's gift with repentance? Yes. So the fact is, is that a loving God or even a loving parent or a teacher, educator, loving administrator, loving leader with the most generous spirit is obligated to execute punishment upon those who disobey and disregard, even if it means doing something that you really don't want to do. Right. Because if you didn't do it for any other reason, you have to do it in order to be right by those who played by the rules, who accepted the covenant as it was written and lived by it. Yes, and I think that it's also... um, Trying to figure out how to say I think it's also important because maybe it stops somebody else from doing the same thing. Yep. Yep. I mean, you know, when we talk about God's judgment, it's easy to get stuck on the fearful, horrible things that will come as a result of denying God's uh, holiness and God's righteous judgment. But God has given numerous escape opportunities and numerous means of of egress, you know, to get out of the fire, so to speak. And then God comes along and gives the ultimate escape, the ultimate rescue from the problem that will cause God's wrath to come down on you. Mm -hmm. And so when God's day of judgment comes, as bad as it sounds, for some, it's really a good thing for those who have accepted it, it's, it's hard to imagine something that sounds so terrible being a good thing, but it is good in that it proves God's holiness and it makes us fall on our faces and worship God for all that God is. Mm-hmm. And this is where the scripture takes us. This is, a, this is, the, the, this is where the, the grown-up Christians have to go. They have to be willing to recognize that even in judgment, God is worthy of praise. And even though it's a fearful time for those who reject God, it's a glorious time, not because we're happy to see all those rotten people get what they deserve. It's a glorious time because it fulfills everything that we know to be true about God and gives us all the more reason to glorify God. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea. Yeah. So when it comes to the topic of judgment, what are your final thoughts? Um, that, yes, it seems scary, but it's going to be okay in the end. And that it's all about repentance and Jesus. There you go. That'll work. Well, this, this has been fun, and uh, hopefully folks like the slightly changed format. I hope that they hear that not only do I keep trying to improve the technology so we get good quality recordings, but I'm also trying to constantly improve the program with format changes. And this question and answer thing I thought might be better, but you got to up your game a little bit, little girl. I'm sure that it will be better next week. I'm not on my game this week. 
Well, if this was a virtual church classroom, then basically you and maybe a few other of our our participants walked into the virtual classroom a little bleary-eyed, a little under-rested, and not really ready for your A-game, you know, because that happens when I walk into classrooms sometimes, too. Well, I'm, I'm... I've been fighting a migraine, and I am not on my A game, but uh, I will be next week. It's well, all okay. right. Dear friends, pray for my beautiful daughter's migraine. <laughs> and uh, Bethany, thank you for doing this again this week. I've really come to enjoy our weekly appointment. And, uh, and uh, you know, if nothing else, um, you know, I get billable time where I get to talk with my daughter. I mean, hey, you know. <laughs> All right, sweetie. Thank you so much. I love you. I love you. And podcasters will see Bethany next week. Say bye, Beth. Bye. See you next week. All right. Well, let's sum up what we've learned today in the words or the language of the faith. That is those uh those uh, Christian-speak or church-speak words that we have. Uh, We talk about judgment. We talk about the day of the Lord or judgment day. Uh, We talk about uh, Armageddon, and uh, we talk about the end of time and the uh, end of the age and the second coming and all of that. But in today's topic, what we're really speaking of very specifically is judgment, God's judgment. The sole creator, the only eternal being that exists before all that is created, this is the judge. And this judge seeks permanent unity with those that he has created. And sin has created an eternal separation, or at least the potential for eternal separation. And so this we would call hell. And heaven, then, is to be in the presence of God. And more specifically, there is the second coming, in which case God is in our presence and we in God's in a unified way, like Eden, but uh, developed much further than that. And all of this hangs in the balance of our decision to either accept or reject Christ as the propitiation or the 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 uh, compensation for our sin, and uh, we have to make a decision to repent of our rejection of God, which ultimately becomes questions about God's character, and ultimately is about whether we believe God is good all the time, and that all the time God is good. That everything God created was good until sin entered the picture, and it is that standard by which God judges. So with that in mind, we accept Christ as the one who creates eternal fellowship for us with our Creator by His sacrifice and His advocacy for us, or to be more precise, He becomes God's justification for accepting us as God's own children. Now this week, as you prepare for our next lesson, uh, consider these questions. Because we live in a culture that says no one's going to tell me what to do, or that challenges us by saying, who made you my judge? We are disposed against the idea of judgment. It is a philosophical hurdle for us, so we all have to accept the fact that judgment in an orderly universe is inevitable. There's an accounting, and it is that way in nature. It is that way in human society. There's always an accounting, sooner or later, you will have to balance the books, so to speak. So how would you explain the meaning and the purpose of judgment in general to a person who objects to this doctrine of judgment? How would you explain to your non-Christian or marginal friend why God must judge? In your own mind, 
how do you picture hell? How does the idea of a final judgment play a part in your decision about your own conduct? And when, if ever, have you experienced consequences in daily living that caused you to reorder your life? In other words, when the balance came due and you realized that your choices, your decisions were reaping a kind of reward that you did not want. And if you are a clergy person like me or a lay person and you are asked to preach a sermon on judgment, what elements and insights would you include in that sermon? Maybe I need to do a message about something like that one of these days. If you felt the conviction of this teaching in a particular way, then perhaps you'd like to join with me and Dr. Callis, who penned these words. Because we, the church, believe in divine judgment, I will remember that the God who judges us is the same God who loves us, and I will live a life motivated by that love. Because we, the church, believe in divine judgment, I will remember that the God who judges us is the same God who loves us, and I will live a life motivated by that love. Well, we've come to the end of another broadcast, and I hope you have been blessed by this teaching. I pray that... uh, God has used me in a particular way to reach you with this word from God. I thank Bethany again for her participation, and and I'd have to say that this week she's testified in a way that she didn't expect to the reality that uh, we're not always 100% with it when we go into our study with God. Migraine headaches and long, hard days at work and just sleepiness and weariness and stress They can all affect how we experience God, and yet God desires, even in those days, that we would know God's heart and mind, and we who earnestly seek relationship with God and each other through the Holy Spirit will find God, even in the midst of our migraine headaches and our despair and our difficulty and stress. I hope you've enjoyed each of these lessons. We're coming close to the end of this series now, and we'll begin a new topic soon. And uh, if you really are blessed by this, please let me know. I look forward to hearing from you each week and uh, learning about your particular life and where you hear this from. And uh, if you are a person of Southwest Indiana, then consider joining us in worship at Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper. You can learn more about Shiloh and me by visiting shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M. M.org, and you'll find all sorts of information there about us. And if you're not part of this local community, find a church somewhere, be a part of a church, join in a fellowship of Holy Spirit-led, Bible-believing people who earnestly desire to know God's heart and mind with all their heart and mind. Next week's topic is the resurrection of the body, Lesson 28, Resurrection. Look forward to seeing you then. For now, God bless you and go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Mm